Good morning and it's great to have you with us. I hope you've enjoyed the worship. Thanks to Joan for leading us this morning. That was that was a, a, a brilliant time of worship together. And it's always it's always a privilege, isn't it? Whether we're joining um, uh, virtually, which we have to at the moment, we can still join corporately together. We are still a body of God's people worshipping him. And there is a lot of power and a lot of privilege in that. Before we go into the sermon today, I'm going to pray for us and uh, then we're going to explore God's word together and see what he's got to say to us today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning and Lord, we thank you for the fact that even though we are in the midst of another lockdown, we can still worship you. Nothing can hold us from our God. Nothing can keep us away from you and nothing can keep you out. Father, we give thanks for that fact. We give thanks that as we gather this morning in our homes, you are there with us. We give thanks that, that as, we, as we worship you, as we hear from your word, as we praise your name, you hear every word and you bless us for it. So Father, we, we look forward with anticipation to exploring your word today. We give thanks for it. And we give thanks for the fact that you love each and every one of us, that you've created each and every one of us, and that you know what what we've been through, you know what what faces us next week, and you know what's on our minds right now. So Lord, help us, we pray, to put our, our worries and fears and anxieties at your feet this morning. Lord, take that burden from us in this time, and help us, we pray, to focus on you. Be with us, we pray, Lord. Bless us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So you would have noticed that this morning we haven't started with a Bible reading. The reason for that is because the passage that we're actually looking at today features in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. And it tells a story which many of us will be very familiar with already. But if you look at the three different versions, you'll notice that they all contain different details. Some of them, at first, appear to be a bit contradictory. But what that does is that shows us that they are all reliable accounts. They haven't simply been been copied from one another verbatim. They have been thought about, they have been researched, they have been been studied, and they have been fact-checked. And each one of the Gospel writers has chosen to draw out a slightly different angle. So, picture the scene. There are four friends who have known each other for a long, long time. They they work in the same area, they drink in the same area, they live in the same area, and they've got a fifth friend. But the fifth friend is not like them. He, for some reason, whether it's from birth or whether it's a result of a terrible accident, he's paralysed, he's paralytic, he cannot move. All he can do every day is spend his days lying on the same mat in the same place, Maybe he had a family that looked after him and cared for him. Maybe he spent his days begging at the roadside. But certainly, he relied on his four friends. His four friends were loyal. His four friends were utterly reliable. His four friends loved him. This paralytic guy must have been someone quite special. Because the four friends did everything they possibly could for him. And they also never gave up believing that one day he would be made well again. This is why they'd taken him to to soothsayers, to witch doctors, to miracle men who toured the area, preying on the vulnerable and the impressionable. 
these friends had taken him and tried different methods, different approaches, different, different people. And they believed, they desperately wanted to believe, they hoped upon hope that one day they would see their friend stand up off his mat and walk on his own two feet. But it was one of those beliefs that they knew was getting into the realms of fantasy. They knew that it was virtually impossible for this to happen. But they didn't want to give up on their friend. And so one day they hear rumours. They hear rumours um, that are going through Galilee of a man, Jesus. He's from Capernaum, a town some distance from where they lived. And this man, Jesus, has been making some pretty outlandish claims. But he's been backing up his claims by performing miracles, healings, these wondrous acts. There are all these rumours about him being someone who can actually back up what he claims to be able to do. And so when these friends hear that Jesus has made his way into Capernaum, they decide that they're going to give up a day's work, they're going to leave their families, they're going to take a corner each of the mat, and they're going to carry their paralysed friend to Jesus in the hope, the desperate, outlandish, ridiculous hope that maybe, just maybe, Jesus would be able to heal him. The friends, having travelled for a long time, covering many, many miles, carrying the paralysed man, eventually get to the outskirts of Capernaum. And when they look at the town, they suddenly have a sinking feeling. You see, words got out. From all across Galilee, people have come to see Jesus. There's an awful lot of people heading in the same direction towards Capernaum, but the trouble is they're not carrying a burden. And so these four friends find themselves being overtaken very quickly by hundreds and hundreds of people who are all heading for the same place. Now, Mark's Gospel tells us that Jesus was at home, which may have meant his hometown, Capernaum, or it may have meant that the actual house where Jesus was was preaching from that day was Jesus' house. The house where he spent his boyhood, the house where Mary and Joseph had brought him up, where he'd learned his trade of carpentry. We don't know that for sure. But what we do know is that everybody knew where to go. Everybody knew where Jesus would be. And when these four friends approached, they suddenly realised there was no way they were going to get a front row seat. There was no disabled access and there was certainly no free entry. Instead, they were going to have to queue and queue and wait in the hope that they would get a glimpse of Jesus and that somehow they could ask him to try and heal their friend. But as they got to the the front of the house, they couldn't even reach the door. They had to join a queue. They had to desperately hope. They were just waiting and waiting. They could just hear a voice inside. They could just hear someone speaking. But what they knew... They'd come this far and they were desperately sad that it looked as if they were going to fall at the final hurdle. There was no way in to see Jesus. There was a barrier of people between them and him. But they didn't give up hope. Instead, 
They stood with the, the thronging masses outside. They waited in the heat of the midday sun. And they edged slowly but surely closer and closer to Jesus's home. The friends queued and queued and waited and waited. And as the heat of the midday sun beat down upon them, the queuing was exhausting. The heat was relentless, but they lived in hope. They desperately wanted to get their friend to Jesus because they knew They knew that if they did nothing for him, he was never going to recover. But they knew that if someone was offering hope, then they wanted to give it a go. As more and more people filed into the building, every last nook and cranny was filled. Every last space was squeezed into. And eventually they got near the front of the queue until suddenly someone at the door looked at them and said, how many of you are there? They said, there's four. They said, what about him? They said, yeah, he's the fifth one. You're not going to bring him in, are you? Yeah, that's the whole point of us coming. The whole point of us being here today is to bring our paralysed friend to Jesus to see if he can help. Mate, there's no way that four of you are going to get in here. And there is absolutely no way that you're going to get someone in there in that sort of state. I'm sorry, but the doors are shut. The four friends looked at each other. Then they looked down at their their paralysed friend. And they knew there was no way that they could give up that easily. So, after a bit of whispering and a few ideas being thrown around, they decided that maybe, just maybe, they could come up with a plan B and approach the problem from a slightly different perspective. After their crafty exchange of ideas, the four friends devise a plan. One of them keeps a lookout, makes sure that no one's looking. Another one goes on a quick reconnaissance mission around the back of the building. There's no crowd around there. In fact, it's empty. He goes back and shares his good news with the, with the friends. They each pick up their friend, take the corner of the mat each, and back away from the crowds. They check around them, make sure no one's looking, and then quietly wander around the corner of the building. Now, in those days in Galilee, most houses, because of the heat and because of the construction they used, would have had a staircase going up the back of the building onto the flat roof. These four friends very carefully pick up their paralysed friend on his mat, carry him up the staircase, lift him over onto the roof, and then climb over themselves. They lay him in the middle of the roof, around about the spot where they know is directly above Jesus. And then they carry out what can only be described as an act of criminal damage. I don't know about you, but if someone hacked a hole in the roof of my house, I'd be furious. I'd want want compensation. Of course, you claim on the house insurance that there was no such thing in those days. These four friends were taking a risk. These four friends were going to have to pay for the damage. But these four friends didn't care about that because they loved the paralysed man, the fifth friend. So the four friends looked down at the roof. Now, if you read Luke's Gospel, you'll see that he talks about them um, it being a tile roof. If you read Mark, then he talks about them having to dig down, which would have been through mud and straw, a different type of roof construction. 
Some scholars say that this shows that it was two different occasions, that this very similar thing happened twice. But for me, I can't help but think that if you focus on the building materials in this story, then maybe you're, you're missing the point a bit. The fact is that these four friends gathered on this roof decided the only way they were going to get their paralysed friend to Jesus that day was by breaking a hole through the roof. And so they began digging and digging. Inside the building, lumps of roofing and ceiling began falling in. People wondered what was going on. Was this, a, was this an earthquake sent to punish this blasphemer? No, it wasn't. This was an act of four friends who desperately wanted to see a paralysed man healed and who desperately believed that Jesus was the only one who could do it. So, we've been lowered through the roof. There's this wonderful dramatic moment where, where the friends are up the top, they don't know what's going on, they're just lowering him. They must have had ropes or something like that to lower their friend down. And people had seen the hole, people have seen the, the, the material from the roof falling down. And then suddenly they see this thing appear. It gets lower and lower and lower until they realise there's a man lying on the mat. There would have been gasps. What on earth is going on? This is ridiculous. Jesus himself might even have been a little bit surprised. The man is lowered to Jesus' feet. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we can learn a lesson about Jesus here. He always had time for people. Jesus is in the middle of preaching. He's got a captive audience. He's in his hometown. This is a big moment. But halfway through preaching, there's this massive hole suddenly appears in the ceiling. Bits start falling on him. Someone is lowered on a mat and he has to stop what he's doing. Now, of course, he could have said, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Look, I've got 10 minutes left of my preaching slot. We've then got a couple of worship songs and then it's time for tea and coffee afterwards. And if I go five minutes over, then the Sunday school teachers will go ballistic at me. You can't be doing this now. Wait till afterwards. But of course, he doesn't do that. He stops what he's doing. We don't know what he was preaching on. None of the Gospels tell us that. But they do tell us that he stopped. That he looked at the man on the mat. And then he looked at the friends who were anxiously peering down through the hole that they'd made in the roof. The Gospels all tell us that Jesus saw the faith of his friends. Jesus looked up and he sees their faith. What does that mean? What did he see? Well, he saw the hole. He saw the, the, the length that they were prepared to go to to get their friend to Jesus. They saw the devotion the devotion that it must have taken for them to bring him from wherever, wherever they'd come from to see Jesus, to carry him through the heat of the day along the dusty, rocky roads. He saw the love they had for him. He saw that they didn't accept no for an answer. 
The reason to cut a hole in the roof is because the room was so crowded that there was no way they could have brought him in. They saw the loyalty. They saw the sacrifice. He saw all these things that they have done for their friend. And because of their faith, because they've done all this to get him to the feet of Jesus, because they believed that Jesus could heal him. Jesus does heal him because of their faith. But of course, I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit to get straight to the healing, because a lot goes on before that. In fact, it's worth noting that in Matthew's gospel, everything that we've spoken about so far doesn't really get a mention. The journey, the four friends, the, the, the crowds, the lowering through the roof. This is how Matthew begins his account of this story. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus doesn't even mention any of the, the, the action that we've seen so far that, that, that Luke and Mark talk about. So, so many of us, when we first hear this story, that's the bit that sticks in the mind. This, this bizarre scene. But Matthew doesn't care for that. Instead, Matthew goes for a very different type of action. Matthew tells us that Jesus' first words when the man was lowered down and when he looked up and saw the four friends was, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, in the front row of Jesus's congregation were Pharisees and keepers of the law, teachers of the law from all across Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. They've come from a very, very wide area. And they'd come because they'd heard about these outlandish claims that Jesus had been making. They'd heard of miracles and they wanted to find out what this this upstart from from Capernaum was talking about. They wanted to find a way of either imprisoning him or silencing him. Now, the word Pharisee comes from a, an ancient Hebrew word which meant divider or separator. And their role basically was to keep Israel, keep the people of, of Israel divided and separated from the pagan countries around them, making sure that, that false gods didn't bleed into Israelite culture and to make sure that the, the, that the Jewish people were kept pure. And so when they heard someone saying your sins are forgiven, they immediately thought, whoa, 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 hang on a second, stop there. Only God can forgive sins. If you're claiming that you can forgive sin, you're claiming to be God. And that, my son, is blasphemy. And blasphemy results in you being stoned to death. It carries a very heavy penalty. Jesus knew their thoughts. Well, he would, wouldn't he? He was the son of God. Jesus knew their thoughts, Matthew tells us. And he said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? So he's calling the Pharisees and the teachers of the law evil. He's accusing them of being evil. He says to them, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But so you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. As, in other words, so you know that what I've just said has authority and has power and was truth. Let me show you this. Get up and walk. And a paralysed man 
stands up, picks up his mat, puts it under his arm, and to the amazement of the crowds inside and outside the building, he walks home praising God all the way. And I bet not another day went past of his life when he wasn't sharing that testimony. But you see, Jesus had said to the to the Pharisees, not only had he said your sins are forgiven, which was which was a blasphemy in itself. He had then said those words. So you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, as soon as Jesus said that, it would have been a Pavlov's dog moment. The Pharisees would immediately have thought back to the scriptures, to the prophet Daniel. When the prophet Daniel in chapter seven of of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament had a, a, a vision one night. And he says, in my vision, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He goes on. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And Jesus has the audacity to say in the gathered crowds and in, in the presence of the Pharisees, The son of man has authority to do what I've just done. In other words, Jesus is identifying himself as that very figure that Daniel prophesied. This story is so important because we see the physical evidence of Jesus proving that he could perform the miracle of healing a paralysed man. And the man walks out. The evidence walks itself out of the courtroom. We see the spiritual evidence. Jesus forgives sins. And we see the scriptural evidence as well. He references the son of man. He identifies himself as being the fulfilment of the vision that Daniel had reported all those years ago. And the Pharisees would have been sitting there, seeing what was going on, realising what was being said, knowing that Jesus was claiming to be the son of God. And that made them feel very scared. Because they didn't entertain the glorious truth that maybe he was the son of God. Instead, they saw him as a dangerous rabble rouser who had to be put down. But of course, what Jesus did that day was show the world that he was carrying a vaccine. We've heard a lot about vaccines this week, haven't we? It's been great news. Maybe there's a a chink of light at the end of what's been a very dark tunnel. This vaccine for the coronavirus. And we're all getting very excited about it. And apparently in 90% of cases, it's successful. It works. It vaccinates against this this illness. Maybe in a few months time or certainly this time next year, we might have some degree of normality back. Wouldn't that be great? We're very excited about a vaccine. But Jesus wasn't identifying himself as a vaccine for coronavirus. Instead, it was a, a much more serious condition. Jesus is saying... I can forgive sin. I can vaccinate you against the pandemic of sin. This, this, this illness that, that rots you away spiritually from the inside. This illness that, that takes over, that dominates you, that claims you. That one day when, 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 you, when you stand, be, stand in judgment before God, 
this is the thing that will condemn you. And there's nothing you can do about it without Jesus. And Jesus says, I am, I am, I am the son of man. I have come with the authority to forgive sin, to put right what is wrong. So how do we react to this? How do we react to this now in, in 2020? Well, put it this way. If someone said to you, here's a vaccine for coronavirus. If they said this to you six months ago and you'd taken it and you'd been immune and you thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. What would you have done? Would you have hidden it away, kept it to yourself, felt a little bit silly about sharing it with other people, so decided you'd just keep it your own private secret? Or would you have gone and shared it with as many people as you could, imploring friends, family, neighbours, strangers to take this vaccine to protect themselves, to keep themselves safe? Would you have wanted to save those lives? Yeah, of course you would. Of course. Well, as Christians, we're in that, in that situation. We're in that position. We have, we have the vaccine against the pandemic of sin. We have the cure to the disease that can rot us from the inside and take our spiritual soul. We have the vaccine against that. The one that can restore us, replenish us, protect us and guide us. And that is Jesus. That's what he gives us. That's why the, the man who walked out of the, of the room that day, he went praising God. That's why the four friends had taken him and, and lowered him through the roof, because they believed that Jesus could heal him. But they didn't realise until that moment that Jesus would heal him, not, not just physically, but spiritually as well. In Jesus's eyes, spiritual affliction is far more serious than physical affliction. And we might look at ourselves and say, well, I'm, I'm fairly fit and healthy and strong. My body's holding up and that's great. But what we like spiritually? What are we like inside? That's what Jesus is most concerned about. You see, it's all very well to be a good person. We've seen this week, haven't we, um, uh, in the, the wake of the US election, we've um, we've seen that, that um, President Trump is refusing to accept defeat, despite the fact that the rest of the world has, has, has decided that he should. And the news agencies have been replaying speeches um, by defeated presidential candidates from years gone past. And it's been so refreshing to hear. There's been grace, there's been dignity, there's been respect, there's been reconciliation after bitter campaign battles. There's been really, really powerful speeches and letters that have, that have been, um, been aired on the news headlines this week. And it's been great. And no one would look at that and say, well, that's terrible, that's awful, I don't agree with that. Because we all look at those qualities and approve of them. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. And as Christians, we need to remember there is there is a difference between being good and being Christian. You can be a really good person, but still be a victim of the pandemic of sin. If you haven't got Jesus, then that's the situation you'll find yourself in. And so our duty, our job is to take out into the world the vaccine, is to take out Jesus and make sure that in everything that we say and that we do and that we that we every act that we perform, we are reflecting the glory of God. 
Paul writes in Ephesians, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so this week, you might be carrying someone. You might feel like they're, they, they're not doing anything for themselves, and that you're having to drag them on their mat. But make sure you're dragging them in the direction of Jesus. Or maybe you've, you've found that for whatever reason, churches are closed and you can't get to Jesus in the way you'd like to. Well, cut a hole in the roof. Not literally, but, but find a, another angle, another way in to bring that person to Jesus. We all have people all around us who don't yet know him. And they look to us as an example. They look to us to demonstrate why they should look for Jesus. And so we must live our lives in a way that reflects the glory of God, that reflects the love of Jesus and that reflects the fact that we can face life and we can face death safe in the knowledge that our salvation is secure because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for sending your son into the world. I thank you, Lord, for Jesus, that he came into this world, that he lived amongst us, that he he suffered in the same way that we do. He walked the same walk that we walk. Father, I thank you that he was prepared to do that. And I thank you for his boldness. And I thank you, Lord, that we have the stories of his life to look to now to learn more about ourselves and about you. Father, I thank you that Jesus went to the cross. I thank you that he died for us. I thank you that he rose again and defeated death. And I thank you that through doing that, he has given the world the vaccine against sin. Father, I pray that you will help us to share that with as many people as possible, to keep them safe and to save lives, not just on this earth, but for eternity. So bless us now, Lord, we pray. Whatever we face in the coming week, whatever whatever good news, whatever bad news, Father, we know that you are there with us. We know that you have all power and authority. And we know that you love us. Bless us, we pray. Be with us as we go out into the world. May we reflect your glory always. In Jesus' name. Amen.